0: If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode.
1: This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac, or drop a crispy fry between the car seats, or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive
2: Download the new Bumble now.
3: The lazy history of civilization is this. The Greeks begot the Romans. The Romans begot the Christians. Christian Europe, that is. Christian Europe led to the Renaissance. The Renaissance led to the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment led to political democracy and the Industrial Revolution. Industrial Revolution and democracy produced the United States, the home of life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness. And we're done. (laughs) (laughs) And we laugh. But actually, read a history book about the world. That's the story that gets told.
2: That was Michael Scott speaking about global history in a lecture he gave at our 2015 History Weekend event. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available from all good news agents or via subscription. Check out our latest subscription deals at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe. The magazine is also now available on many digital devices, including the iPad, iPhone, Kindle, Kindle Fire, Google Play... Kobo and Zinio. Look out for us in your app store or newsstand, or find out more at historyextra.com forward slash digital.
0: We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings, that frustrating thing your mum does, or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com historyextra history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com history extra. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help.
2: Welcome to our third podcast of January 2016. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. For this episode, we're broadcasting a lecture from our 2015 History Weekend event. The speaker is Michael Scott, an associate professor in classics and ancient history at the University of Warwick. Michael is also a popular broadcaster and author, and it was the theme of his next book, Global History... ...that formed the basis of this talk. So let's head over to Malmesbury Town Hall... ...and hear what Michael had to say.
3: How do we study history? At school, we learn about it in modules, in bite-sized chunks with neatly defined beginnings and endings, whether it be the Nazis, whether it be Henry VIII, Elizabeth I, the Russian Revolution, Bismarck. And at university, it's very much the same. We teach within modules, we exist within departments, we research within particular subject areas. Now, of course, we do this because it makes the past Manageable. Do right? we have to break it into chunks or periods of some kind? To, because no one can know everything about everything, despite the fact that some people try to claim that that's what they know. And some of these periodizations have no basis. In reality, right? They are very much for us. This is one of my favorites from, from my world, the ancient world. The ancient Greek world is divided into, some of you may know, the archaic, of the classical, and the Hellenistic periods, or the big A, big C, big H. And so much is attributed to these worlds, these, these periods, as if they were entirely different worlds. And yet, no one in ancient Greece woke up on the 1st of January 479 BC and went, Way, well, hey, I'm in the classical period, baby, it's a whole new world. Right, kind of this is they are totally fake and invented by us to make our our lives studying the past manageable. And as a researcher, as an academic researcher, one does exactly the same thing. One ends up specialising in a period, a place, an era, a theme, whatever it might be. And we do that in order that we can become specialists. And then we can walk around and say, well, I'm a specialist in. And one can talk to other specialists in journal articles and books that you're writing and at conferences. And so it ends up that people within the Department of Classics... uh, talk to people within the Department of Classics, um, but not to other departments. They end up publishing books, and I'm as much a culprit of this as anyone else. If you go and have a look at any bookstore for ancient Greece and Rome, the classical world, you'll see any number of books that is X or Y theme in the ancient world. And you're like, well, hang on a second. No, 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 no. What, what, the only thing that book is talking about is the Greek world, or the Greek and Roman world. Not even the Mediterranean world, and yet... We've lulled ourselves into this false sense of security that we're happy to call that the ancient world, as if it's the entire thing, all that matters, all that exists to a certain extent. You know, another kind of example of how much we've fallen into this trap is that classicists are congratulating themselves very much at the moment because we've managed to break out of just studying the Greek and Romans and realise that the Greeks and Romans lived with other people around the Mediterranean. Right? <laughs> stop the presses front page headline books are being published that talk about the Mediterranean all the cultures that lived around this one sea if you have a look David Abolafia's or or Cyprian Brubank's recent but fantastic works real incredible works of scholarship yet the fact that they're being heralded as such a breakthrough to join up worlds of thinking and what a small world we've managed to join up just one part of the real ancient world tells you quite how far we've got to go we do all this And yet, do we ever stop and think about how we might be doing history differently? From the early 20th century, there has been an alternative path that's been known as global history or world history. Now, as its name suggests, this way of doing history distances itself from one period or place and instead focuses on a much bigger canvas, It's been particularly active in the United States, where liberal art undergraduate degree programmes attract those wider view world history courses and students that want to have a more accessible wide knowledge than immediately put themselves into a period of specialisation. But how do you do global or world history when no one can know everything about everything, even just about history, for one thing? Well, there are three main approaches. The first is big history. Right. And if you want, there's a couple of examples here on the slide for you to go and have a look at. And big history can mean seriously big history. So if you go and have a look at D. Christian's maps of time, he starts history with the Big Bang taking from those scientists what they always claim is their story and making it the arts and humanities, the historian's story. History begins with the beginnings of the world itself, the universe, Um, and he comes forward all the way through. Or if that's a bit too big a canvas for you, perhaps you prefer to start just with the evolution of Homo sapiens 250,000 years ago. Yuval Noah Harari then is your man. Or you might want to start just with the last mm, 5,000 years. Go and have a look at Barry Cunliffe's Steppi, Desert notion. Ocean. And what these books do by covering such vast space and time is give you a sense of similarity and difference, of different paces of evolution, of different uh, ideas uh, that start in the s- different places but actually are very similar and come together, as well as a sense of interdisciplinarity, right? They're talking about science, they're talking about history, they're talking about geography and geology all mixed up at the same time. The second kind of approach for doing global history is looking very much at the history of globalisation itself, as in how our world has gradually connected, come together, and become more interdependent, and how at the same time that interdependence has been influenced by local areas, and how in turn those local areas have been influenced by that interdependence. Now, this subfield, I think semi-helpfully at best, has got itself tied up in knots, particularly over how to define globalisation. It's a typical academic debate, isn't it? Well, what do you mean by globalisation? Well, I mean, well, when people start moving around, you know, and, and frankly, you can start that pretty soon after the evolution of homo sapiens as they start to move around from different continents. But other people say, no, 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 no. Globalisation starts in 1571. <laughs> Why 1571? Well, that's when Manila was established as a Spanish emporium connecting Eastern Eurasia and Americas and world trade was fully global. Now you know when globalisation started, right? But other people say, no, 1571, I'm sorry, that's far too far in the path. Actually, globalisation started with the Industrial Revolution and the standardisation of time zones. And some people say, no, 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 no. Globalisation actually only started with global air travel, fully interconnected global economies. We've only actually had globalisation for the last 50, 60 years or so. So this area, if you like, of doing global history has got itself caught up in a sort of internal academics debate who are actually arguing over the terms they want to talk about. That's useful to some extent, but I don't think it really gets us anywhere um, if we want to offer a blazing new alternative to specialised history. And the last way of doing global and world history has been particularly difficult to swallow because it's comparative rather than connective history. We've been talking so far about worlds as they connect together. But the other major strand of global and world history is comparative history, where you take places and times and periods that never connected in reality, never perhaps even knew about one another, and you bring them into comparison with one another for the purposes of understanding each of them better, but also uh, to understanding the different ideas uh, and forces and mechanisms that are expressed within their societies. Now, in my field, in the ancient world, in the ancient Greek world, that's been particularly useful in comparing Greek and Chinese philosophical and scientific thought, and equally with comparing the Roman and Han empires. So, two sides of the world, over in the Mediterranean and China, two empires that existed at the same time, did have some direct contact, certainly knew about one another, but weren't, uh, because of the difficulties of distance, directly in contact a lot of the time, and yet, between them, controlled over half the world world's population. So if those are our three ways of doing it, and they've emerged during the 20th century, why have these new approaches come about? It's a fundamental question for any historian to ask the why. Why are we talking global and world history in the 20th and 21st centuries? Well, these approaches were born as an antidote, or rather as a desperate attempt to move on from World War I and World War II. They were born out of an idea that global conflict has almost consigned us to the end of civilization, perhaps if we understood each other better, we would be able to avoid global conflict in the future. And the historians of that period, post-World War I and World War II, were reacting to the nation-state. The 18th and 19th centuries were all about the nation-state and about histories being written and formed around the nation-state, that history was being used to support and grow the identity of of these uh, adolescent nations. And very much, they had ended up Nation and history being so linked that we weren't thinking globally, interconnectedly uh, about our wider human identities. H.G. Wells, who's better known for obviously uh, as, a, as a publisher, as the, the father of science fiction for writing The Invisible Man and The War of the Worlds, actually published a series of articles soon after World War I that were then compiled in the 1920s into a book that was entitled The Outline of History, being a plain and simple history of life and mankind. And in it, he argued that in light of recent global conflict, it was imperative that people should learn about history not simply of their own nation. That's what got us into the problems in the first place, in his point of view. But of all the world. And yet it was impossible to do that, for everyone to know everything about everything. And so this was his idea. The only possible answer is that universal history is at once something more and something less than the aggregate of national histories to which we are accustomed. That it must be approached in a different spirit and dealt with in a different manner. Now this book seeks to justify that answer. It has been written primarily to show that history as one whole is amenable to a more broad and comprehensive handling than is the history of special nations and periods. A broad handling that will bring it within the normal limitations of time and energy set to the reading and education of an ordinary citizen. This was his call. This was his belief. This is what was needed, not just amongst professional historians and academics, but amongst every one of us, Right, an understanding of history that was more global. And it wasn't just in the UK, in the USA, in Germany too, there was a a leap forward in this direction, particularly post the Second World War. And for the ancient world, that was very important. There was a a German historian called Karl Jaspers who came up with the idea of an axial age that existed between 800 BC and about 200 BC. AD. And when you looked across all the cultures of the world in that time frame, you realised that they were all sparking. This was the era of political, social, religious ideas that were breaking the mould of anything that had come before. This was the era of democracy and philosophy in Greece, of Buddhism in India, of Confucianism in China, Zoroastrianism in Persia, all these new forces, so many of which are still part, absolutely part of our world today, came into existence in this axial age. And Jasper's idea wasn't simply to identify that in our past, but to set it up as something for us to emulate in our future. Humanity had managed to have an axial age once before. Maybe we could do so again as a result, avoid world conflict as a sort of excellent side advantage. And Gore Vidal picked up on this idea in 1981. I don't know whether you've come across his novel Creation, but it fixes in on this moment of the axial age. And he has a single character who's an ambassador for King Darius of Persia, who by hook or by crook and by collapsing a few time periods and manipulating history a little bit, is able to meet all of these major figures across the entirety of the ancient world, the real ancient world, and have conversations with them and engage with them. You know, Who wouldn't want to be um, that person? So what do you get out of doing global history? Well, we've said the early people after the post-World War I and World War II were thinking it was going to help us avoid further conflict, increase international understanding. It was going to inspire inspire. inspire humanity to excel as it has done in the past with so-called axial ages. But also more recently historians have identified a couple of other crucial important advantages that a global perspective gives us. One is interdisciplinarity. If you spend any time in universities nowadays you will find everyone using the word interdisciplinarity. Everyone wants you to be interdisciplinary. Everyone wants the subjects to cross boundaries, but no one's quite sure how actually to do it. We spend a lot of our time working, well, what's really interdisciplinarity look like? And I think global and world history is a prime example of real interdisciplinarity. If you go back to those examples of the the long durée history that I started with, where people are starting with the Big Bang or the evolution of Homo sapiens, one of the things you have to do if you tell history on that kind of times scale, is start to think in terms of science, in terms of ecology and environmental change, in terms of human adaptation, in terms of cognitive science and behavioural change, what we can possibly know from a wide range of disciplines to be able to bring that story together and interlink those different aspects so that we can understand better what is primal causes of, of, of bigger forces, the forces of nature, what is the result of individual action. And if you have a look at, for example, Ian Morris. His book in 2010, "Why the West Rules for Now," he has a great example that around 200 BCE, Northern Europe, the climate gets warmer, it becomes more fertile, and it's just at that time that the Roman Empire starts to look north because it's now worth conquering a little bit further into Northern Europe, and it changes the direction of expansion for the Roman Empire from where they might have gone or tried to go much much further east than they actually did. Or if you have a look at Peter Frankopan's recent Silk Road that's just out this year. He too looks in the 4th century CE at climate change, which might well be at least in part responsible for motivating the migratory nomadic wave that hit the West and the Mediterranean in the form of the Huns during the 4th and in the 5th centuries AD. But I think the other crucial advantage is that it forces us to take a more balanced view about history itself. A really interesting book is, is Tamim Ansari's Destiny Disrupted back in 2009. And he and, and, and Peter Frankopan also quote Eric Wolff's um, so called lazy history of civilization. The lazy history of civilization is this the Greeks begot the Romans, the Romans begot the Christians, Christian Europe, that is. Christian Europe led to the Renaissance, the Renaissance led to the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment led to political democracy and the Industrial Revolution. Industrial Revolution and democracy produced the United States, the home of life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness. And we're done. (laughs) And we laugh. But actually, read a history book about the world. That's the story that gets told. Where in this story is the geographical centre of our world, which is Central Asia? It's very hard to find anyone or any real department that is able to to bring that period of history, that that part of our world and its history, into our mainstream understanding of how our world and how humanity has developed. What about the Islamic Empire and the Islamic world? What about China? How do we explain that up until the 18th century, China was seen by the West as the beacon of everything that was good and wonderful? Voltaire could not stop going on about how amazing China was. And no one gave two hoots about Greece. Smelly lot of dodgy people who were part of the Ottoman Empire. And yet, with the rise of the nation state and the Industrial Revolution, by the 19th century, China was the antithesis of everything that the West wanted to be. And Greece, with the Greek War of Independence, its resurgence to becoming a newly liberated nation, slipped in to that location, that place that China had occupied in our hearts and minds as the beginning and sort of source and origin of everything that was wonderful about our Western world. Taking a global view, I think, could help us to readjust and rebalance our narrative and understanding of our world and our human story. And the other thing I think it does for us, as it says, is uh, it's a quote from Professor Sir Geoffrey Lloyd, who's done an awful lot of comparative analysis between Greek and Chinese philosophy and science. A global perspective offers us a way out of parochialism, right? a way out of seeing the world as deceptively familiar. Or as Walter Scheigel, an academic in Stanford in the States, has put it, I just absolutely love this quote, the single case historians, the people who only look at one world rather than taking that broader perspective, are like the drunk who looks for his lost keys under a streetlight, not because that's where he's lost them, but because that's where he can see. <laughs> Don't think any of us want to be that drunk going forward, although we can start to see we might well very well be without even meaning to be so now these global perspectives are not despite the fact they've been around since the 20th century are not part of our mainstream school history curriculum our university curriculum or indeed a mainstay of professional academic research in fact if you say global history to a bunch of academics and historians you'll probably hear at least some of them under their breath say globaloni back to you in response And there are many reasons for this reticence to engage. Some of them are merely practical. If you write a book about global history, the publisher and the bookshop, Waterstones, will be knocking on your door going, what shelf does it go on? (laughs) And it sounds stupid, but actually that's a major block to people deciding to write about particular topics. If it's not to sell the book, what about if I'm putting forward a research proposal? Which committee panel do I apply to? Because they're all thematic geographical, or temporal. How does one actually do this kind of research within a world that is so rigid in its disciplinary boundaries? And then there is the more general, wider resistance to that connected story. I love this, this fact that in 1949, just as we were coming out of World War II, just as global history was really getting going, UNESCO commissioned a book about what French culture owed to outside France as a template for what it would hope to be a series of books covering all EU nations to encourage international comprehension amongst 14-year-olds. That book was commissioned in 1949, and it appeared in 2012. (laughs) For France only, and hasn't been repeated for any other nation. That tells you a little something about the resistance to taking a more connected and global view. To this day, if you look at history faculties around the world, they remain resolutely nationalistic in their focus. In France, in Germany, in the UK, nearly 50% of history faculty members specialise in European history. Now, I'm not saying that's a bad thing. Of course we should study our worlds and the worlds of Nira But it is slightly odd when Europe is just one part of a much bigger world. The same is in the US. 39% of history faculty teach US history only. In the 1990s, the Council of Europe recommended that schools in the EU include in their history syllabus, quote, the history of the whole of Europe, the main political and economic events and the philosophical and cultural movements that have formed the European identity. Don't need to tell you that that hasn't happened either. And while on the one hand we might see that as a positive step forward, at least a European identity, really we're just replacing one with another slightly bigger version of the world. It's back to that old, the Mediterranean. We've broken through to the Mediterranean people. We've done the ancient world. We've we've got to Europe. What about the rest of the world? Or in 2009, an American senator introduced a bill claiming that the strength of American democracy and our standing in the world depends on ensuring that our children have a strong understanding of our nation's past. Full stop. End of story. Again, In the US, a move now as we get into the 21st century that actually what people need is an understanding of our world, where we live, and we don't need anything else. I think from my perspective as a historian looking at global history, one of the crucial things to understand is that this is not the first time we've been in this moment with this desire to be more connective in our approach to our past and yet with an ongoing reticence to us being so. We could go back to the 17th century to Sir Walter Raleigh. Now, Walter Raleigh spent the years between 1603 and 1616 imprisoned in the Tower of London, having been found guilty of treason. Now, the first three years of this imprisonment, he spent doing medical and chemical explosion experiments in a small outhouse at the back of the Tower of London. It's kind of a nice idea that prisoners were allowed to sort of potter around with dangerous chemicals and just see what happened. But by 1606, clearly blowing stuff up had got a little boring. And Walter Raleigh turned his mind to history. And what he did between 1606 and over the next five years was write his history of the world. In the first volume, it followed the story of human history from biblical creation to the captivity of the Jews, and in the second volume, historical events from the fall of Babylon to the conquest of Greece by the Romans. Its goal was to convey moral instruction to current leaders, in this case, his uh, Prince Henry, who was supporting some of his work. And this is how he described it. It being the end and scope of all history, to teach by example of times past such wisdom as may guide our desires and actions. Now these first volumes were eventually published in 1614. They had a frontispiece representing Cleo, the muse of history, bearing up the world in her hands and trampling on death and oblivion. And Ben Jonson uh, created the, uh, the, the uh, poem for the preface, quoting Cicero, with time's witness, herald of antiquity, the light of truth and life of memory. Now, what Walter Raleigh was doing was to link independent but near-simultaneous events from different geographical areas to weave his narrative together. Prometheus, for instance, according to Raleigh, lived at the same time as Moses. It was a universal project that sought to pull different strands of our past and our world together to prepare future leaders to live in an age in which the boundaries of the world were being rapidly expanded. The Americas had been discovered and were being explored. Sailors had discovered how to sail around the Cape of Good Hope at the southern tip of Africa, as well as from America across the Pacific to Asia, leading to the exploration and exploitation of Asia and the Indian Ocean. And in turn, the first English translations of literary works from these different worlds were also starting to appear. Antarctica and Australia were appearing on world maps for the first time. For a new, much bigger world, a new, much bigger approach to history was required. Now, the remaining volumes after volume two never got written. His patron died in 1612 and Raleigh died in 1618. But those first two volumes were an extraordinary publishing success. The ten editions were printed between 1614 and 1687 alone. And even Oliver Cromwell recommended it to his son Richard because of its comprehensiveness. He said, it's a body of history and it will add much more to your understanding than fragments of story. But by the 18th century, with the rise, beginning of the rise of the nation state, the popularity of this work declined, disappeared. No one was interested in world history, connective history in the same way. But we're mistaken if we think this was the first time that humanity went global and then came back to the local. Actually, we can go much further back to the ancient Greeks and Romans. Yes, they had to get in here somewhere because they were awesome, after all. My <laughs> Following the conquest of Alexander the Great, there we are on the top left, which created an empire stretching from Greece to the shores of the river Indus in India, there was a new era of global Connectivity. The successors of Alexander divided up that world, but they remained resolutely connected and became ever more so until by the end of the third beginning of the second century BCE, the world was connected from China all the way through Central Asia to the Mediterranean with the beginnings of the development of the Silk Roads. This is one of my favourite characters, Megasthenes. This is the uh, the front cover of a translation of his text. You may well never have heard of Megasthenes. He never makes it into pretty much any undergraduate uh, classics degree, that's for sure. It shows you which bits of the Greek and Roman worlds we're interested in talking about. But this is him supposedly turning up as ambassador of the Seleucid Empire to the King Chandragupta at his capital of Patilaputra in India. This is uh, Megasthenes, who then went on to write a book about India, in which he claimed it was the home to enormous gold-digging, man-eating ants, uh, men whose feet were backwards, and all other sorts uh, of extraordinary ideas, as well as uh, amazing uh, kind of insights into how Indian society managed to operate supposedly without slaves, which was a concept that Megasthenes couldn't get his head around, coming from the Greek and Roman world where you couldn't really do anything without a slave. This was also the era where this chap down here in the barrel at the bottom of the picture, this is Diogenes cynic sitting back in Athens, this was a guy who liked to break all the rules just to show that he could. He was the guy who defecated in the agora and masturbated in the theatre, right, just because I can. But this is the guy who uses for the first time in our surviving sources the descriptive adjective to describe himself as cosmopolites. I'm a citizen, a polites of the cosmos, of the world. This was a, an era in which the perspective of these ancients was getting bigger and bigger. And from the fourth century BCE onwards, you see a new strand of history, universal history beginning to come into play, in which these historical narratives focused not on individual periods and communities, but actually much broader worlds seeking to understand how they had become connected and what impact those connections had had. Among them, Diodorus Siculus from the first century BCE, Diodorus the Sicilian, writing his Bibliotheca Historica that sought to incorporate the works of people like Megasthenes as as part of a 40 tome endeavour to record what everyone knew about the widest possible world that he could get his hands on. Followed by Strabo in the first century CE, and people have drawn a map of, of what Strabo's world looked like by the time he'd done his Geographica. I mean, you know, hey, it's not too bad, right? kind of, we saw Ceres up here, this is his understanding of China, sort of slightly above India, but he's getting there. You know, this is a much bigger world. This is a writer that's in Rome and well-versed in Rome, and will read Strabo in, in classical undergraduate, courses, but we won't ever really think about the context of this connected world that he's trying to to put together and and, and draw on. And indeed, you could, it's not just in the Mediterranean world that this is happening at this time. If you go over to the other side of the world, to China, by the second century BCE, you have the Chinese historian Sumat, Qian, who is under the Han Emperor Wu, breaking with Chinese tradition, the Chinese tradition of writing histories focused on single dynasties and states, to create what is known as the Shiji, a general history of China over the previous 2,000 years, in which he's not just interested in the development of people within the Chinese world, but also of the nomadic tribes, particularly that live outside that world, and mixing history and chronology with biography, with discussions of music and culture, and trying to Uh, see what really connects and unites this often very disparate world as well. But just like we've seen in the 21st century, and just like we've seen at the time of Raleigh and moving into the 18th century, just the same, back with Diodorus Siculus and others, they knew they were facing an uphill struggle to get this kind of history heard. Diodorus Siculus complains in his narrative. Although the profit which history affords its readers lies in its embracing a vast number and variety of circumstances, yet most writers have recorded no more than isolated wars waged by a single nation of a single state. Tut, 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 tut. And his narrative ends with the rise of the power of the Roman Republic and there is really his answer. By the time he was finishing writing, not long after him, you get another major historian of the ancient Roman world, Livy. And his major work, again, massive number of tomes, is entitled simply Ab Urbe Condita, from the foundation of the city, from the foundation of Rome. And as Rome came to take over the Mediterranean world, so it became the only focus that mattered. Just after two centuries after Diodorus, there's an orator called Alias Aristides who eulogized about Rome and its world in this way. What was said by Homer? The earth was common to all. You, Rome, have made a reality by surveying the whole Icumene, the whole inhabited world, by bridging the rivers in various ways, by cutting carriage roads through the mountains, by filling desert places with post stations, and by civilizing everything with your way of life and good order. And now, indeed, there is no need to write a description of the world, nor to enumerate the laws of each people, but you have become the universal geographers for all by opening up the gates of the oikoumene and by organizing the whole oikoumene like a single household. For Aelius, everyone now was Roman, and the whole inhabited world was like a single family. The whole world was Rome. We didn't need to look outside, and that sense of centrality. Is even more striking if you go back to China and have a look at the Chinese sources again. Over in China, you have a book of documents from the 6th century BC, a very central and important early text, the Shang Tzu. And that starts to talk about the chungkuo, the central middle state or nation. And that is how China always described itself in antiquity. In fact, that term Chunquo is still part of the technical term in Chinese today for the Chinese Republic. And another one appears from the 2nd century BC, all under heaven. This is the way that they thought of themselves as being everything that mattered. So by the time you had the Roman Empire over in the West and the Han Empire over in the East controlling half the world's population, both of them thought themselves to be all that mattered. And that wasn't because they didn't know about one another. They did know about one another. But yet they had this blinkered view that really history stopped and started with the boundaries of their world. Very similar, I hope you will agree, to where we might be finding ourselves again in the 21st century when the European Union suggests that everyone should know about European history, but everything else outside that isn't necessary. Or when the American senator says, for American democracy and the stance of our nation, all you need to know about is US history. That idea that really our world is all that matters is a place we have been in before. Before. Now, I've come to studying kind of global history as a classicist, and this is a new adventure um, for me. But in reality, I've got to the point where I can't ignore it any further. Everywhere I look within the classical world are signs that stressed to me, you have to look further afield. It may be down here, this is Delos, the island of Delos in the Aegean. You'd think, absolutely Mediterranean. But here, there are religious cults coming from Syria, from Egypt, from inside and getting in towards Middle Asia, as well as the Greeks and the Romans and everyone else from around the Mediterranean. Or up here, this is a a drawing of the city of Ikonum, a Greek settlement that's in modern-day Afghanistan, where placed... Um, And a central pillar right in the middle of the town were the maxims that had been inscribed supposedly from the oracle at Delphi thousands and thousands of kilometres away. Or indeed the Silk Roads that connected up the Roman and Chinese empires, so much so that the Roman writers are constantly complaining about how Chinese silk allows Roman women to walk around looking naked because it's so thin and luxurious and svelte. This is absolutely awful. And they also spend all their time complaining about how much gold is running out of the Roman exchequer and going to China. (laughs) (laughs) We're here again, right, kind of in a certain sense. Or in here, on the right, when you start looking at the earliest images of the Buddha, it's no coincidence that they are very much like that of Greek statues of Apollo. Indeed, the Buddha is only turned in, images are only made of the Buddha after the cult and worship of Apollo makes it in Central Asia, where Buddhism by this time had spread to. You can't ignore, or at least I am beginning to realise that you can't ignore taking a bigger view if you really want to understand the world. And I think, at the same time, you can't ignore it not only because you want to understand the ancient world better. You can't ignore it because we are again on the cusp of a period in which we may well need global history. And we may well need, I think, ancient global history. I think it's got a lot to say for itself. We are, to my mind, in the 21st century, poised just like we were in the last centuries BC with the rise of Rome, and as Raleigh was in the 16th, 17th centuries, to need and want a more global narrative. Now, this isn't simply because, as everyone keeps telling us, and if you read Ian Morris's book, Why the West Rules for Now, but China's going to take over very soon, right? We might need to know something about China and the other parts of the world as well, or the BRIC countries, or whoever is coming next to rule the economic global entities that we now exist in. It's also because we're faced with increasing numbers of divisions across the globe that are cementing and once again hardening our senses of identity, whether that's East versus West, West versus the Middle East versus Islam, Old Europe versus New Europe, whatever they may be. And it's also because at the same time we're facing an increasing number of challenges and issues that, because of their nature, can only be addressed and assessed through a more global approach, climate change, migration, Economics, religion, disease, trade. We need, more than ever, a broader and a border-crossing perspective. We need a world consciousness. We need to understand, as the term is being used now, that we're all on spaceship Earth together to meet our global challenges. I am not saying, as my final point before I shut up, that this is the only way we should be doing history. But I think we should be devoting more time to it than we currently do whether that's in schools, whether that's in universities, whether that's out there in our day-to-day lives. And I very much hope that you would agree with that and that if we do so, we can use history in the way that Raleigh wanted it to be used, not to prepare leaders to lead us better, but to prepare us all to be better citizens of a much bigger, or as big as it's ever been, but a much more connected world. The way we write history tells us as much about ourselves as it does about the past. So, the question we need to ask ourselves is what do we want that story to be? Thank you very much indeed.
2: That was Michael Scott speaking at our 2015 History Weekend event. Michael's next book, Ancient Worlds, is due to be published this summer, while his most recent book, Delphi, A History of the Centre of the Ancient World, is out now published by Princeton University Press. And you can keep up with his work at michaelscottweb.com. Following the success of our History Weekend, our events programme is continuing in 2016. Next month we're holding two day events, themed on the First World War and Roman Britain, respectively. Head to historyextra.com forward slash events for more details on those and to book tickets. Meanwhile, why not check out the January edition of BBC History magazine, which is currently on sale. In this month's issue, we have articles on medieval violence, Wallace Simpson, War and Peace, and the murder of Edward II, among other things you can get hold of our January edition in all good news agents and in our many digital formats. One of the regular sections within the magazine is our First World War, which charts the progress of that conflict a hundred years ago through the words of those who lived and fought through it. We've also been including accompanying audio clips within the podcast, and this month we've come to January 1916. So here, speaking to the Imperial War Museum is Sergeant William Collins recalling a tragic encounter with a remarkable soldier.
1: Now on the 30th uh, came a day which I shall remember as long as I'm alive. Last, almost my last breaths I shall remember this brave fellow, unfortunate fellow. I was walking up Hullock Alley and uh, I came across a stretcher party of, uh, of, uh, of the 9th Division, the Highland Regiments, you see, and... Uh, I saw them carrying a man on a the stretcher. There were four of them, carrying him low. And I stopped them. I said, what, is there anything I can do? And they looked at me and said, and I, he said, well, have a look at him. I looked at him and he was very badly wounded. He got, you know, he was pop-marked on his chest. I just looked, turned a bit, looked at his chest. So I said, well, come down to our aid post because we're the nearest point here. We, it was it was not far off the bottom of the communication trench. And uh, so I took him down to our hole in the ground at Vermells. And we put him on the, on the crate. And, uh, I think it was Captain, uh, Captain Graham who leaned over him and looked at him. He took his, took his jacket off, you see, and stripped him down. And he got multiple wounds. He, he, he was literally pepper, maybe like a pepper pot. And, uh, he gave a little sigh and died. And then Captain Graham looked at him and he said, uh, well, he says, There's nothing we can do. He says, you, he says, you, he says, you go through his, he said to me, you go through his pockets. And he told the, the, uh, the, the chaps from the, uh, the, 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 Highland regiments, the it was the Royal Scots Fusiliers, the Royal Scots, not Scots the Royal Scots. And, uh, uh he said, you go uh, through his pockets. He says, we'll, we'll go through and send his, any, what he has, we'll send them home to his, next to kin there's sure to be a letter in his pockets. And they said, I said, tell your officer that we're going to send his little things home to his bed again. And uh, so I, he gave me the job of going through his pockets. And I took out a, a document in an envelope. By the way, I, I looked at his chest and I saw the ribbon there. I said, what's the ribbon? I said, that's the Victoria Cross, sir. And Captain Graham looked. He says, yes, he says, so it is. I said, this is a VC. I took his documents out And he was Private Robert Dunsire, 1st Battalion, Royal Scots, V.C. V.C., 1st Battalion, Royal Scots. And I took his papers out of his pockets. There was a letter from home, so I got his address. And in his pockets was an envelope with a document telling him he'd been promoted to Lance Corporal, and in the envelope was the Lance Corporal stripes. He'd never had a time to put it on his sleeve. that was the most tragic thing to me. Did he die as a private or did he die a Lance Corporal? In the records, BC records, he's down as a private. But in my opinion, he died a Lance Corporal because once he's been promoted, he's promoted. The fact that he hadn't got his Lance Corporal stripe up is irrelevant. He's a Lance Corporal. And I sent his things home to his uh, next to Kin in Glasgow.
2: That was William Collins. Keep up with our First World War each month in BBC History magazine. Well, that's pretty much it for this week, but do listen in next time when we'll be talking about King Arthur and the of Tsars. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future episodes. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook? where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, where you will find history quizzes, galleries, articles and more. Plus, it's where you can download every single previous episode of this
0: podcast.